0: because it's the Eucharist, there's this moment in the mass where you, you eat food, right? And the, the food that you're eating is literally God. Mm-hmm. And so that cre- obviously gives food this incredible religious significance, and the act of eating this incredible significance. So mm-hmm. you have some people who only try to eat the Eucharist.
1: Oh, really? Well, oh, yeah. that's, that's going to be pretty unhealthy.
0: Exactly.
1: Hello, my geeselings It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 53. This episode is with Christina Van Dyke, who is an emerita professor of philosophy at Calvin College and currently a visiting professor of philosophy at Barnard College. And... Christina specializes in uh, a number of things, but most relevant for today, she specializes in medieval philosophy and philosophy of gender, and has also done a lot of writing and thinking and talking on the philosophy of food and eating, and that is what we talk about. We talk about the gendered aspects of food and eating, uh, their religious history, some of the ethical concerns associated with eating uh, though not so much veganism as you might suspect but more societal norms and then we also talk about eating disorders and how all of this relates to philosophy and then after that uh though they are pretty much unrelated we go straight into medieval conceptions of animals so we talk about bestiaries and Hildegard von Bingen, and this secret society called the Brethren of Purity, and naturally, as you might imagine, the connection to philosophy, and how or what philosophizing about animals back then was supposed to do, which is to tell us or them something about what it meant to be human or means to be human. And in that same vein, toward the end of the conversation, we also talk about medieval philosophy of angels and how that also relates to what it means for us to be human. So, Christina is the author of A Hidden Wisdom, Medieval Contemplatives on Self-Knowledge, Reason, Love, Persons, and Immortality. And you can keep up with Christina at cvdphilosopher.net. So, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed talking with Christina. first thing I'm curious about is how you came to decide to study and focus on medieval philosophy. I talked to Peter Adamson, and I wonder if your story is similar, and I hope I don't butcher this, but I think one of the reasons that he ended up going into Islamic philosophy as a focus was that it really felt like a a free and open frontier where there was so much work to be done and so many unexplored texts? Is, is that at all? What got you into medieval philosophy? And, and in particular, focusing on understudied women in medieval philosophy?
0: Uh, so what originally got me into medieval philosophy was that sense of yeah, just like Peter Adamson says, the unexplored frontier, the mm-hmm. idea that there are all these texts out there that people hadn't looked at, that people were underappreciating, and there was like all this work to be done. I went to grad school originally thinking I was gonna do ancient philosophy, mm-hmm. and I was really interested in Aristotle on substance, and that I ended up taking a class with Norman Kretzman and realizing that all the questions I was interested in, in ancient philosophy were present you know, being asked in the medieval period and answered in in all sorts of different ways. Because mm-hmm. Aristotle's texts were so underdetermined and, you know, famously. And so originally for me, I got really excited about Thomas Aquinas. I didn't start working on medieval women for a long time. Hmm. There was all kinds of, yeah, there was just all kinds of stuff to be done on topics I was really interested in originally in like the mainstream people, if there are mm-hmm. any medieval.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I when I talked to Peter, I was very surprised. But I mean, a lot of the Islamic philosophy that he studies is in the medieval period. And I was surprised by just how alive and thriving the study of ancient was at that time period. I know there were there were sort of two main groups, the Kalam and the philosopher and the Kalam were more theologically oriented, but the philosopher group was very into the um, ancients, Aristotle and Plato. And but before we get into some of the medieval topics, you have another interest that like jumped out at me immediately, and that was uh, your interest in eating. And I'm sure uh-huh. medieval philosophy will work its way in here somehow. But how did you first become interested in the ethics of eating? Are you a foodie? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, not even a little bit to the okay. despair of my very Brooklyn husband. Ah. Um, I mean, I, I enjoy food, but I got into that actually, because of my interest in gender. I got asked um, years and years ago to do a dorm talk by some of my students in philosophy of gender who were really excited. And it was right before Thanksgiving. And so I thought I would talk about the way that different foods get associated with different genders and they got really excited about it. Hmm. And so I ended up spending a lot more time thinking about the ways in which patterns of eating and then also actual types of food get associated with men and women. So that was my way into it, but then I do find it an absolutely fascinating topic.
1: Yeah, I was going. I was going to ask you then. So, what does it even mean to say that eating is gendered? So, it's not just the act of eating; it is foods itself. Mm-hmm. Do you have any examples that come to mind on how eating is gendered or how food is gendered?
0: Oh, of course. <laughs> the The famous example is if you. So, what I did in this drum presentation was mm-hmm. to say, "Okay, you know, guys." what do, what do women eat? And they instantly had answers. They're what like "What were some butter, of the ones, yeah. fruit, you know, like fat free, you know, this, anything. Um, and then also like brownies, ice cream, right? So I had ice
1: cream for breakfast. So. Exactly.
0: And then you, like, <laughs> I asked the women and I'm like, okay, so what do guys eat? And there was a kind of this, like this pause and they're like anything they want.
2: Huh. <laughs>
0: And then they're like, meat, and there's like, oh, yeah, yeah, meat's like very male-gendered. Like Mm -hmm. the idea, like it's the one kind of food that men get to cook.
1: Yeah, you actually, I think you you quoted Carol Adams as calling meat the symbol of the patriarchy, which I found really funny because I don't know if you're aware, but it's very much in the zeitgeist right now that everybody's on the carnivore diet, at least all the men are on the carnivore diet. And so I wonder what that says. Yeah, people.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. And if you look at the people that are trying to like biohack, in term eating into this extreme sport, it's not going to be a surprise that it's the guys.
1: Mm -hmm. Wait, why is it not going to be a surprise?
0: Because turning <laughs> I mean, so I was <laughs> sorry. This it always cracks me up because if you look at how people talk about eating, for women, food tends to be much more social. Um, at least like you know, non obsessive eating tends to be like a much more social communal activity. And for men, if they're talking about food, and they've gone beyond the just kind of you know like beef and burgers, a lot of times they're going to, they're going to focus on, um, ways in which like eating is going to be tied in with health and nutrition. So you get all kinds of people in Silicon Valley right now who are really interested in trying to like basically crack foods code so they can figure out how to do maximal nutrition. And it's just kind of this way of making eating an extreme sport, Mm -hmm. but also kind of making it seem technological
1: what do you mean by that in the technological sense
0: um so i don't know if you've heard of huel
1: i have heard of Huel because i get ads for huel all the time but you could you could tell me more about it
0: demographic
1: i am i i mean you're basically describing me i for me food is (laughs) food is uh very has very little to do with being social but i count all of my macros all i have protein shakes everything is i eat I'm going to have some venison for lunch.
0: <laughs>
1: so you've pegged me. But, so what's Huel and what's, what's interesting about oh, it?
0: Oh, Huel is one of those sort of synthetic foods that's supposed to capture all the nutritional components that you need and like the right proportions. Um, and part of the attractiveness of stuff like this is the idea that if you can just figure out the ideal, like you said, you know, like your macros and like if you can just kind of figure out the right combination, you'll achieve peak health, which of course also has all sorts of underlying assumptions about what health is and how attainable it is. But it goes with this conception of the body as a kind of machine that you're working with, but that ultimately is gonna start breaking down, right? So you're trying to like, keep your machine running in sort of like the best possible way. Mm -hmm. And so there, yeah, there are a lot of products out there right now that are being targeted to like tech bros, for lack of a better word, but just in general, um, it tends to be like, white men, younger who are, who are like interested in, yeah, like you are saying, like interested in sort of like health, interested in kind of being efficient about this stuff.
1: Yeah. If you saw my Instagram, like the sort of ads that I get, it's like I get ads for like man pudding or (laughs) uh, my mom, like jokingly got me a, a man marzipan bar for like Christmas, Uh, but I'm getting ads for men men's grooming, men's therapy, like all sorts of just very men focused, uh, products and food clearly is not excluded from that.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing I was at some point. They figured out that they could sell more stuff by splitting the market for even things like protein bars between men and women. And so ever since then, you get this, yeah, you get this prolifer- uh, proliferation. So you get this proliferation of products that are aimed specifically at increasingly narrow demographics.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So it's not mm-hmm. at all surprising that you get ads for men's protein bars and.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's this great website or Tumblr of unnecessarily gendered products.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I should check that out. But but so you mentioned some of the foods that are associated with gendered eating, like meat on the one hand and fat-free yogurt on the other. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But what are some of the acts of eating that are gendered?
0: Yeah, I actually think that this is changing a bit. In the 20 years or so, since I first wrote, uh, my first article where I talk about this originally, there was kind of this idea that men could more or less eat whatever they wanted, whatever they wanted. And I mean, I think that that is definitely still kind of prevalent, but now there's this increasing idea that for men eating should almost be like a technical exercise or like a sport. Um, and then patterns of eating. I used to get this talk called I'll have a salad and a diet Coke, <laughs> right? And the whole reason that that was a good talk title is everybody knows exactly like who's ordering that. Mm-hmm. And the thought is that we create partly these ideas about who we are that relate to how we eat when we eat and what we eat. And so if you're on a date, and you're a woman, and you're on a date with a guy, then a lot of times the kind of calculus mental calculus that you're doing, um, my students love to tell me, is you're trying to figure out what you can eat that will demonstrate a that you're not anorexic, right, like that you don't huh. have hangups about food, but then b that's, that's going to be, you know, sort of something that fits the, the picture that they're trying to convey. So it's going to be something like, maybe not a salad and a Diet Coke, because that's going to be too extreme. But yeah, like a glass of white wine, and, you know, some chicken, you know, so if you're going to order meat, it's going to be very, it's going to be lean. It's not going to be like, yes, there was actually, do you watch Abbott Elementary? Never heard of it. Okay. There's this great show. And at the end of the last episode, oh. the main character is on a first date and she's eating ribs. And it's just one of the funniest things you've ever seen. Right. Cause she's just like, <laughs> and it's exactly what you don't usually associate with women uh-huh. on a date.
1: Hmm. And Are these, sort I, to use a word that you've used in your writing, are these myths about eating or gendered food pernicious exclusively? Like how, how are they, how are they bad?
0: Right. The way in which they're bad is the way in which most of the myths about gender are bad in the way they create social expectations that box people in.
1: So they undermine freedom in some way.
0: Right. Well, and then that kind of punish them for transgressing. So my Mm -hmm. brother works at a factory and if he ever walked in there with like a salad and fat free yogurt and diet Coke for lunch, he would never be taken seriously by anybody on the floor ever again, (laughs) right? He's a big dude. He's like six, five. And there's just this conception it. Yeah, I mean, so the perniciousness about the cultural myths comes in when they tell you, they become normative, they tell you how you're supposed to eat, and how we're supposed to behave. And when you don't, if you're a woman, sometimes that can be kind of cool. So watching a woman eat a burger can be you know it's like oh you know she's cool she's one of us she's you know she's one of the
1: guys which is exactly uh, which is cool you know yeah Yeah.
0: (laughs) um but the converse of that like not surprisingly just given the way that genders are hierarchical and valued is that if you have a guy who instead of eating burgers is like yeah i'd like a kale salad with a dressing on the side and then also you know so in in lots of places that's gonna have or sort of like the big cultural myths that kind of order is gonna be very like demasculated
1: yeah i i got lunch with a professor a of- a couple of days ago here at Stanford. And when I order, I ordered a salad. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, what is this going to say about me? Like, <laughs> does it, is it Does it suggest that I have um, like mental issues or something like that, just that I, yeah. I want to order a salad? Like, am I an insecure person or am I not serious enough about philosophy that I'm focusing on food?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And so those exactly those kinds of feelings of like worry and insecurity and shame that get associated with something like ordering a salad for lunch with somebody that is not a part of your life, you know, that that mm. tells you a lot about how and you know, sort of basically the why and how those kind of cultural myths can be pernicious.
1: Yeah. Uh, are there any positives? <laughs>
0: Um, I think the, I mean, so again, I think the positives, what they're what they are, lie in the way that they can give a group solidarity. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I mean, so obviously, that could be negative simultaneously. But if you're trying to create group solidarity, like you're coming into a community, like that can be a way of bonding. So so You know, the beginning of first semester in colleges all across the country. One of the ways that friend groups and people start to bond with each other is over food. Mm. And you can find out sometimes, oh my gosh, you love this. I love this. But also Mm. it can just be a way of identifying yourself as somebody who belongs in a particular community. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that can be positive, right? It's not always going to be positive, but sometimes it can be.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that, no, that's, that's all very interesting. I was talking to uh, Ricky Heck of Brown about signaling the gender category to which you belong. Mm-hmm. And if you're um, a queer person or uh, transgender and you want to be perceived as uh belonging to a certain category it's nice that you can have these very gendered acts like or perceived as gendered acts like wearing makeup or mm-hmm. earrings or things like that so you can just sort of outwardly signal who you are and so exactly. i can see how, how that can be positive with regard to eating as well even if there are bigger problems afoot as well
0: right like and you can kind of queer your food choices in a way you know that can Say something about how you want people to perceive you.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, anorexia mm-hmm. when talking about this m- mental calculus our hypothetical woman is going through on her date. And that leads me to wonder whether there are gendered eating disorders or agendered eating disorders.
0: Oh, um, I mean, anorexia is strongly correlated with the female gender or because of the sorts of restrictions that have traditionally been placed on women in terms of what is considered acceptable to eat and the amount of space that they're expected to take up in society, which is as little as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And then you add stuff. Yeah there's all kinds of stuff going on there that associates anorexia strongly with women and particularly starting in their teenage years when they start to develop secondary sex characteristics and, you know, start being, you know, treated by other people in society as not just girls anymore, but women, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: although it starts even earlier in a lot of places, depressingly. Um, so anorexia and bulimia tend to be eating disorders that are more associated with women for men. Um, one thing that's interesting is there's, there's something called orthorexia, which is an obsession with kind of correct or right eating. It fits with the biohacking I was talking about where the focus becomes on eliminating anything from their diet that is perceived as potentially having toxins or, you know, weighing you down in certain ways. And that kind of eating can become disordered when it takes a place of importance in your life, that means that you don't do things like eat with other people in community or right. Consume like a wide variety of food groups. Mm -hmm. And that disorder is more, I mean, it's, it's kind of split, but it's definitely more commonly associated with men than anorexia and bulimia are.
1: And from looking at some of your papers, it also seems that maybe this is where the eating ties into your work in medieval philosophy. It seems that anorexia or even orthorexia tie into religion, in an, there are important ties there, and medieval thinking about religion. Is that accurate at all about feasting and fasting? And I think of, who was it uh, that, well, I guess Graham was in his name, probably, the person who came up with, or no, Kellogg's? I don't know, somebody oh, came no up with I this not. like pure food to keep you from masturbating somehow. <laughs> and so that, that seems to be very, very gendered and very religious at the same time.
0: right. So that, yeah. So you have that period, um, where you have both the guy who invented graham crackers, graham crackers were invented as like, yes, part of this perfect food that would, and kind of a kickback to, you know, the idea of the humor is basically like lower the heat of your body so that you wouldn't be lustful. And so that you wouldn't masturbate it was supposed to kind of help you regulate your body and same thing with kellogg yes so the person who invented Kellogg's cereal was very in thought of it as this kind of health food that would help with excess uh desires put it Mm -hmm. that way (laughs) so it was very much identified with moderation and Again, these were people that were, that tended to be vegetarian too. So this is this push from these men with the idea that we, we want to kind of transcend our animal natures. And so what you want is, you know, not surprisingly, it's associated with the transcendentalist movement. You have these people that are trying to move away from their bodies as kind of animal and pushing towards health and kind of purity and you know the higher realm Um, and this can be associated with religion but i mean the transcendentalists themselves had a a very kind of non-traditional non-traditionally theistic religion so the way they're thinking of god is is very vague and abstract and you know much more Thoreau and Emerson and people like that. Um, The way that food ties in with medieval philosophy and and the Middle Ages is, yeah, there were a lot of practices that were involved with the spiritual life. And Carolyn Walker Bynum famously wrote this book called uh, Holy Feast and Holy Fast, where she talks about the importance of food in the lives of medieval women. So holy feast and holy fast, I think was one of the big books that brought attention to the the role that food plays in medieval communities. Uh, Rudolf Bell has a book called holy anorexia, huh. that has the same kind of focus where he he basically interprets the behavior of a lot of female mystics and religious figures in in the middle ages as you know basically anorexia for God, right the idea of sort of trying to trying to transcend the physical realm to have a closer spiritual relationship hmm. but that's actually not how i got into working on women in medieval philosophy um that was just kind of a cool tie-in with the stuff that i was doing in general gendered eating it wasn't until i was working on the Cambridge History of Medieval Philosophy volume with Bob Pasna that I actually started doing philosophical work like on women medieval philosophers Um, and that was basically just because we couldn't find someone else to do it Mm. people hadn't done it yet
1: that's funny well that's always exciting to find something new that nobody's been working on
0: oh it was super exciting Yeah, I mean, because, you know, this goes back to the very first question you asked about how I got into medieval philosophy in the first place. And part of what had excited me about it was that there are all these people and ideas and worlds out there that hadn't been researched and explored to death.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so finding that again, when I started looking at the texts of these women contemplatives and mystics and seeing all these connections to philosophical conversations from the day right there, was that same kind of exciting. I don't know what the best word would be the same kind of adventure for lack of a better word.
1: <laughs> that book you mentioned, uh, a few minutes ago, was it cat by Catherine? Uh, was that the name?
0: Carolyn Walker Bynum,
1: Carolyn Walker Bynum. What was the the general message of that book?
0: Um, so in holy feast, holy fast, what Bynum does is looks at German nuns in particular, um, and looks at the the role that food plays, because one of the central, probably the central act of the Christian religious life at this point is the Eucharist.
1: That's what I was thinking.
0: Exactly. Because it's the Eucharist, there's this moment in the mass where you you eat food, right? And the the food that you're eating is literally God. Mm-hmm. And so that cre- obviously gives food this incredible religious significance. And the act of eating this incredible significance that then sort of gets carried over in different ways to different parts of their lives. Mm-hmm. So you have some people who only try to eat the eucharist
1: oh really well that's that's gonna be pretty unhealthy
0: exactly yeah (laughs) so you have you have sort of these miraculous stories of women who refuse to eat anything and only right the only thing they eat is the the wafer at the mass but obviously that becomes highly disordered and problematic but You could see where it would come from. Right. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, if you could make it work out so that the only food you were taking into your body was like, God, that Mm -hmm. would be pretty awesome.
1: Another place that I thought it might, that food might have entered medieval philosophy is maybe in halal and kosher laws. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't, you can only eat meat certain times. Are, are these things that are discussed at all?
0: Oh, definitely. Because in the Middle Ages, there's Yeah, I mean, so there's there's halal, there's kosher. And in Christian medieval in Christian communities, you have all of these fast days. So every Friday, I mean, this is sort of like, why Catholics, you know, there's still this you eat fish on Fridays, because you don't eat red meat on Fridays. And there were any number of of times where you would be like Lent, for example, or Advent were supposed to be periods where you were depriving yourselves of certain kinds of foods as a preparation for, you know, this big, well, you know, with Advent, it's Christmas and with Lent, it's Easter. So you're getting ready for these big religious moments by kind of, you know, um, depriving yourself of certain things to sort of focus yourself in certain ways. And then feast days, obviously the idea is that then you're, you're associating this abundance of food with this religious celebration. Hmm.
1: I, well, this is, this is my, my last question, I think about food and then we can, we can move on (laughs) to some of your more medieval oriented work. Now, obviously, philosophy has contributed to discussions of eating and what we should eat. Uh, What I have in mind is just like maybe arguments for uh, veganism. Mm -hmm. But are there any other ways in which your research into the philosophy of eating has suggested ways in which we can eat better? And if not for our physical health, but for maybe our mental health?
0: Um, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's a huge question in in a lot of ways, right? So eating has become such a charged activity for so many people that I always feel like I want to be careful when I'm talking about it. Because once I I gave a talk where I was saying that the the practices of fasting and feasting could kind of be seen as correctives for the kind of excessive, eat whatever you want, whenever you want, don't think about it too much of men, and the kind of tendency towards restriction and repression that you get um, in myths of female eating, And at the end I had somebody come up and, you know, I was presenting this as like a really positive thing, right? So if you're a woman, um, you might need to, you know, want to experiment with feasting with, with, you know, kind of celebrating the food on your plate and not worrying about what it is. And, um, and, and she came up afterward and she was like, you know, actually just talking about fasting and feasting, like it's a really dark place right? So just talking about those as disciplines and like thinking of those as like recommended activities, like makes me like really anxious. And I, I thought that was really good to hear because this isn't something that I struggle with myself. Um, and, and so it's good to be reminded that people like any kind of proclamation you make about like, we should try this. We should think about things this way, right? That there are going to be some people who experience that potentially in a really negative way that you never intended. So with that caveat, <laughs> um, one thing that's come out is the incredible importance of food and eating as this act that we share with other people. That's a celebration of physicality so often you get this push in philosophy in particular towards the mind and away from kind of physical things and i think at its best like reconceptualizing eating so that it's a way of celebrating connection with other people and a way of kind of reminding yourself that you're not just a brain right that you're like this physical organism is potentially really, really positive. Hmm.
1: Well, I, I promised we would go, we would move away from food. Thank you for humoring me, uh, by talking about it. so <laughs> okay. much.
0: Yeah. Um, I haven't thought about that in a long time as like as a research subject. Anyway, that's fine. Okay,
1: great. Well, I might, you might end up being dragged back there because the topic I, I wanted to go to, um, Next was animals. Oh yeah. And in particular, I'm the first thing I, I was curious about was you've well you've you've written about and talked about this lately, but one of the the texts you've cited is by not just one author, but I guess a collective called The Brethren of Purity. And one when I read that I thought, well that is that is such a cool name uh, <laughs> for an organization. But I don't know, perhaps their writings on um, animals have something to do with kosher law or halal or something I have no idea but the 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 text you cited was called the case of the animals versus man before the king of the jinn and I don't know if gin means genies I, I really don't know so what yeah. is this what is this it is it is genie yeah oh great yeah. that's a, I use that for... I use that Scrabble word all the time because it's a great it's a great J word <laughs> and it's spelled so many different ways. Like with exactly. a day with a D with a couple of ends, you can put like yeah, a Y H on the more. end. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, so what's, what is this text about?
0: So the text is, oh, it's this fabulous 10th century text that's put together by this group that, that whose Arabic name gets translated as the, yeah, the brethren of purity. And they're basically the secret organization. Awesome, I know. Um, mm-hmm. We still don't know who actually was in it, but they produce fifty-two epistles. They call them. Is and, that like a letter? Um, more or less, but it doesn't read like cool. a letter. Yeah. So epistle just means they call them epistles, so they're letters. But if you a read a poem them,
1: or other literary work in the form of a letter or a series of letters,
0: yeah. And so they're well. I mean, I guess it is. If you, I'm sorry, it is an epistle in that you, the way that it starts off is they're talking to kind of other, you know, they call them brothers, and they're like, so if you think about it, you know, like this is what animals are like. But the very last one in this series that they wrote is a fable or a fairy tale or whatever you want to call it, where. You have this island where the djinn live and the djinn are are basically like you know fire spirits so they're created they're terrestrial but you know like they're associated with fire whereas human beings are more associated with like earth you know and water the djinn are associated with fire and air so so you have this island where everything's been wonderful it has tons of resources the animals there live in happiness and, and um, it even says in peace. So they're not like hunting each other and killing each other. And then a shipwreck brings 70 human beings ashore. And the human beings decide, of course, that they should be able to just kind of like colonize the land and the animals bring a law case to the king of the djinn against the human beings because they're like, look, human beings act like we're theirs, they oppress us in all these ways, they treat us horribly. And basically, we want you to rule that we're free beings that they can't do that to. And so the whole work is this fabulous discussion of all these different types of human culture. So it's the, the Brethren of the Purity is trying to synthesize works from a variety of different philosophical and religious backgrounds. So you've got mm. Pythagoreanism and Platonism and Christianity and Islam and Jewishness, or Jewishness. Judaism
1: (laughs) but Jewishness works too
0: yeah so (laughs) I don't know where that came from it's been a long week yeah no so right so you they're trying to combine Islamic and Christian and Jewish ideals they're trying to get in you know Aristotle and all these other people and so you have like human representatives for a lot of these different communities that will get up and try to explain why they think human beings have dominion over animals in the sense that human beings should basically be able to do what they want with them. And then in return, the animals send out messengers to all the different groups of animals. And so you end up with representatives for flying animals and fish and sea serpents and mammals and right it's and and they speak their case and basically the whole way through the animals are kicking the humans butts in terms of their arguments Hmm. you know so the 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 human beings are like oh yes you know look at the nobility of our form we stand on two feet with our heads in the air and
1: And then the kangaroos uh,
0: (laughs) exactly (laughs) Um, yeah, no, so it's, it's, um, oh yeah, the, the animals, even school, the human beings on like the interpretation of the Quran. Hmm. So, so like a couple of the human beings are like, look, it says right here in the Quran that we were given animals and the animals are like, you are misinterpreting that. Right. It means that we're supposed to be living in a certain kind of relationship, not that you get to abuse and oppress us. Hmm. Yeah.
1: So what then is the moral of this epistle? Were the brethren of purity, like modern day PETA. <laughs> um,
0: it's actually really controversial what the overall moral is, because at the beginning, it sounds like the overall moral is going to be to tell you how human beings and animals should kind of coexist in the cosmos, like what the relative places are. Um, but by the end of it, you get the sense that, right, human beings have given themselves far too much importance. And that really, the only thing that's special about them is the fact that they have free choice and the ability to become morally good in a way that the animals don't. And, and then rather than having the king of the djinn actually adjudicate the case, it just kind of ends,
1: Yeah, I was gonna ask how it ended.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's fascinating. It doesn't, it doesn't end the way that you would expect, right, which is either the king of the djinn says, Oh, human beings, you are horrible, and you need to like, back off, or saying, you know, no, human beings are correct, you do actually get to, you know, instead, You have this final speech, Uh, everybody just kind of sits in silence for a while and looks at each other, and and that's kind of the end. So later versions of it actually give it a bunch of different endings to kind of give it a more definitive feel. Mm. But the actual text itself, and I think this is partly just because it's meant to be this kind of synthesis of all these different ways of thinking just lays out all this stuff, ends with this final consideration, and then sort of leaves it as an exercise to the reader, what they think they should say about it.
1: Do you have Arabic? So do you, is this like one of the texts that you read very closely or are you working more in like old English, middle English, all those variants in there?
0: Yeah, so I don't have, yeah, I don't have Arabic. My husband is, is, is who's also a medieval philosopher, oh, is awesome. much more in that world. Oh, yeah, exactly. So I actually made him come uh, to my seminar while I was talking about this, so he could say all the true things anytime <laughs> I like, went a little fast and loose. Um, no, so I do much more in the Latin tradition, and then mm. the vernaculars that are coming mostly out of Latin, and then some of the Proto-German.
1: So, yeah, That's actually what I was going to ask about you next was about Hildegard von Bingen. Mm -hmm. So she was writing as I take it, uh, in like around the 12th century. Yes. And so you're reading the proto-German, uh, in the original when you're doing scholarship on, on her.
0: So actually I have done very little with Hildegard because she's pre 13th century. And in the medieval Christian Western European world, right, the kind of Rome based Christian tradition, um, the 13th century is this huge shift. Oh, really? Yeah, um, culturally and philosophically and ideologically, so that the kinds of things that Hildegard is saying in the way that she's saying them aren't really in conversation with a lot of these later texts that really are part of a are a single ongoing conversation and the big difference is uh, the rise of the university system and then the translation of aristotle from greek and the arabic commentaries into latin
1: Hmm. so was hildegard some sort of pagan or what what tradition is she interacting with
0: Oh, no, she's, she's thoroughly Christian, but she's Christian. She's like the Rome-based Christian pre, like, reception of Aristotle into
1: Latin.
0: And it's, and she's also, um, well, okay. So the other big thing that happens in the 13th century that kind of makes this watermark between What Hildegard is doing and what people like Catherine of Siena are doing is the rise of these mendicant movements like Dominic like the Dominicans and the Franciscans and so you suddenly get this big emphasis on kind of like preaching and teaching you get a bunch of church reform um, and you get this huge rise in the number of lay religious women that live together in community. So Hildegard's a nun, and she's part of a convent, she actually founds another one. Um, But in another century or two, you have these communities of women, all over, uh, like the lowlands and Germany, and parts of France, that aren't members of that, that like, aren't cloistered nuns, but that are just women living in these communities together. Hmm. This is the beginnings.
1: Yeah, my, my cursory Wikipedia uh, survey of Hildegard has told me that a couple of interesting things. One, she's um, a mystic and visionary, yep. uh, which makes me wonder, how, since I haven't read her, uh, what her argumentation for philosophical claims are going to be, or if she's just getting them all from divine insight of some sort, but also that she was the founder of scientific natural history in Germany, or at least that's, according to Wikipedia, what scholars have said.
0: So we actually just read some of her in conjunction with the Brethren of Purity. Yeah, the she,
1: Physica, right? Yep,
0: He writes this, this big book where she basically like, it's almost like an encyclopedia. So she starts with plants and she'll tell you about all these different kinds of plants. And the focus is like what their nature is and then how human beings can use them. So the Physica is actually a book of healing and it's kind of medieval medicine, but yeah, she's incredibly interested in the way that human beings fit into the world and the way that the world works.
1: What does she have to say about animals? So like, why would you select this text to read in conjunction with our friends, the brethren of purity?
0: The main reason was just to see the similarities in how animals are being characterized. So like particular animals get this, you know, so we have, we, ha- there's a reason, sorry, so there's a reason why in Pinocchio. The conscience is a cricket.
1: Uh, please tell me more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I also nice. hope she talks about
1: sea serpents too. Cause when you said sea mm-hmm. serpents that jumped out at me.
0: Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you have, you have these traditions and partly they're, they're encapsulated in this period through bestiaries where you have these often illuminated manuscripts where you have individual animals and like part of the, description of the animal is supposed to tell us something about human beings, and like human nature and how we should act. Um, And part of it is to just kind of help you get a better sense of understanding and appreciation for creation. But like the cricket is consistently this very wise, very eloquent, like little insect that um, gets used as a spokesperson. Right, so in the brethren of, of, in the case of the animals against the gin, the crickets and the the cricket and the bee are two of the sort of most eloquent animals huh. at like defending themselves. You know, and everybody loved bees. You know, they're like absolutely fascinated with their architectural ability right so how are they able to like you know make these perfectly hexagonal little yeah yeah cells and how do they (laughs) keep surviving in the winter and so they're associated with like prophecy and with like hidden knowledge because they thought maybe they went and lived in the underworld during the winter and then came back again
1: yeah i mean it's still mysterious even today i mean these sort of behaviors are being decoded genetically, but it's still endlessly fascinating how some strands of DNA can produce in this extended phenotype. This, these crazy structures, I mean, same with ants or other social insects.
0: Yeah, you get vastly basically civilizations with mm -hmm. like all of these different social roles that are like really carefully distinguished from each other.
1: So it's very, it's very fascinating how um, before a sophisticated science can account for this with, I mean, what we know as genetics, you come up with the, these very, to us, far-flung explanations. Oh, bees have hidden knowledge. They're associated with prophecy, things like that.
0: Exactly.
1: What were some of the other animals that she discusses that maybe compare, interestingly, to how the Brethren of Purity... Describe them.
0: Um, so she. Well, this actually doesn't relate super much to the brethren of purity, but it's too good. You definitely don't have to use this, but oh my gosh, beavers! The, the I Latin, to talk about beavers. The Latin, the Latin for beaver is castor, and oh,
1: castor oil is that? Yeah, exactly. Somehow related.
0: I'm sure it's related. Yeah. So so castor um, was the Latin for beaver and there's this legend about beavers where they talk about the different uses of, um, yeah, basically the different parts of beavers and the way that they could be useful in medicine. And parts of them were seen as highly effective for reducing fever, but the testicles in particular of male beavers were seen as really useful for medicine. I mean, kind of like the horn of the white rhino is the reason why, you know, like, they were driven to extinction or hunted to extinction. Talk about
1: gendered eating. I mean uh, (laughs) those are highly prized by men.
0: Yeah, because yep. They're basically like the animal version of Viagra. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Right? So you so beavers were prized for like their fever reducing abilities. And the story was that if they were being chased, a male beaver would bite off its testicles and throw them at the pursuing hunters and then run away because they knew that like that's what the hunters wanted so you have all of these illustrations you can look it up like all of the illustrations and manuscripts of beavers basically like with their testicles in their mouth right like getting ready to rip them off and then after that the story was if a beaver was being pursued by hunters, it would stand up on its hind legs to show you there was nothing left to steal.
1: Huh, that's awesome.
0: (laughs) I know, but you're just like, wow, that's amazing.
1: Are there any other interesting animal tidbits, Uh, pun unintended, but from, (laughs) (laughs) from, from, from Hildegard?
0: Well, yeah, so one of the, One of the things that shows the way that animals were being thought of in this period, and the idea that the distinction between real and imaginary animals wasn't very like hard and fast is that in the physica, one of the animals that she talks about is the unicorn. And she talks about what you'd use its liver for. And we're like, wait, Uh what? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Right. You're yeah. what <laughs> you're eating, but the- liver
1: is also I uh, just going to, butt in a super like quote unquote manly food, right. I mean, liver King on Instagram. And, oh and I will admit that I did just eat some liver like, <laughs> like a couple of days ago I finished, I had a liver. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, it,
0: you know, so it was actually a part that was, um, often reserved for this part for pregnant women because they needed the iron. Yeah. So they recognized for ages that livers were like this incredibly valuable part of an animal because it contains so much valuable nutrition and resources. Uh, so what are you so, supposed to
1: do? Oh, please keep going. Oh,
0: no. So, so what's fascinating is like Hildegard's. this is a book of medicine. And she's like, yes. So you can take a unicorn liver and, you know, like lay it on you for all kinds of different conditions and it'll help, you know, and, and. And what's fascinating is she, so she's basically treating it the same way she treats like a sheep or, you know, fish as an object that, yes, if you saw this animal, you know, here's what's really cool about it. She also talks about like how, you know, it has great powers because it tries to drink the water of paradise. And but in the end of the day, it makes all the there are like these famous tapestries at the cloisters that show a unicorn hunt. And today everybody's like why would you be hunting unicorns right Mm -hmm. that just seems evil and you're like well yeah they just they weren't seen as these kind of mystical otherworldly creatures at that Uh point they were they were powerful and unusual creatures but so were lions
1: and they had great livers
0: and they had great livers
1: Mm -hmm. but this must have been uh Hildegard, the mystic speaking, when she's (laughs) telling you about unicorns, because I have a feeling she never actually encountered one. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, yeah, but then you think about how many of the animals that she talks about in her book that she would never have seen, Mm -hmm. you know, so like, why, why would it be so crazy to think that there is a horse out there with a horn, Mm -hmm. you know, who is like, maybe good for, uh, taking the poison out of water sources,
2: If you already
0: believed that there were tigers, you know that had like that their fur like gave off this certain kind of substance that you could use to, you know, cure arthritis. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, another uh, book, and I think this was a contemporary book um, that you cite as the bestiary in the medieval world. But you are you also already mentioned that bestiaries were um, were commonplace, and since we've just talked about unicorns, were there any other sorts of strange animals believed to exist back then that maybe, I don't know, had interesting medical properties? (laughs)
0: Um, I mean, there were all sorts of them. There was a, there was a certain kind of animal called a Hydra. That would roll in... That was supposed to be, like, the mortal enemy of the crocodile. And they would apparently, like... They're supposed to roll in the riverbank to get all covered with mud so they'd be easy to swallow. And then the crocodile would, like, swallow them whole. And then they would, like, burst out of it. So they would end up destroying the crocodile in this super gruesome way that kind of reminds me if you've ever seen, like, the incredibly disgusting but in some ways awesome picture of the of like boa constrictors that have eaten crocodiles and then like no, the crocodiles and oof yeah that's a rabbit hole you can go down later
1: okay okay yeah duly noted
0: doesn't any, turn out any, well uh... easily for either the boa constrictor or the crocodile
1: Mm-mm. any any other particularly interesting animals
0: oh i was just trying to think about that
1: I, I the one that just comes to mind when I think about medieval animals is the questing beast from Arthurian lore.
0: Oh, yeah. So interestingly, that doesn't show up in the bestiaries. Huh. For whatever yeah, for whatever reason. Um, at least if it does, I'm not a, I'm not aware of of where it is. And I haven't run into it.
1: Yeah. Well, do you know the book England and its Kings or England and her Kings? Do you know Mm -hmm. the one that I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, I don't. I think that's the first place that King Arthur is mentioned, and it's like hundreds of years after he was supposed to have lived. But I don't know when the questing beast is first mentioned. Obviously, it's pretty prominent in *Le Morte d'Arthur*, but that's not till uh, the mid 1400s, and that's probably past the time. That's past the time that we're talking about with all these medieval bestiaries, right? Are they still being produced up to and beyond that point?
0: um they've kind of hit their heyday by then right so okay. the, the formula well no i mean so so the, the, you kind of get like the the development and then at some point there's just kind of like a form that they take and then everybody's kind of more or less copying that form um so the yeah the development of the Arthurian legends are really kind of kicks off with the troubadours in the in the um 12th and 13th centuries and gets like huge in the 14th century so that's i think where you get a lot of the that's what um thomas mallory's drawing on in the more arthur like all of those mm-hmm. stories like so there, de
1: Troyes, those sorts of people mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah so he's one of the very first people who's who's starting to like write these stories and share them and then become immensely popular
2: mm-hmm.
0: actually to no. the point where to bring it back Uh, To the point where medieval mystics, male and female, use all kinds of the language from these Arthurian legends and the Finamore tradition to talk about the relationship of the human soul with God.
1: What language in particular do you have in mind that's specifically Arthurian?
0: Um, So the Arthurian legends where you get both the Lancelot and Guinevere and Tristan and Ezod are... Stories where you have a a knight who loves, a you know, whose beloved is above his station, who's, you know, out of his reach. And yet it's supposed to be the purest sort of love because it drives you to all of these heroic feats and you never stop questing for it. And at the same time, you're not really expecting a consummation necessarily. So you get this idea of love as a sort of burning passion, and love is this um almost, sort of like always almost beyond our grasp hmm. that a lot of a lot of the mystics use and contemplatives use to describe the kind of relationship that we can have in this life with God. Where it's always, you know, we're never going to quite get the fulfillment of it. But it's still what's motivating all of our, you know, behavior here on Earth.
1: Hmm. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Arthurian legends. This cat is, the breed is called a Cornish Rex. Oh, uh, so, so they're from Cornwall. And her sister um, was the first one of these I got. And her Aww. name was Iselt oh perfect yeah um and she was a very sweet cat yeah the sweetest now why beyond the history the and the historical fun aspect of reading about hildegard or the brethren of purity what are some of the the philosophical issues that these bring out that make them relevant for a philosopher like you
0: Yeah, so the whole reason that we're reading them in this particular class is because the seminar's focus is on um, the the central question of who are we in the Middle Ages? Because if you want to look for one single motivating question that drives medieval philosophy, it's probably that. They're trying to figure out, Who are we? What are we supposed to be doing? How do we know, you know, what does that mean in terms of our relationship to the rest of the world and to God and to everything else? So, because in medieval philosophy, starting, I mean, starting with Augustine and probably even earlier is the idea that that human beings have these physical bodies, but they have these rational immaterial souls. Right? I mean, that goes all the way back to Plato and before even. Um, but the thought is we occupy this really special place on the hierarchy of being. And so we're looking at animals. So so partly the interest in animals in the Middle Ages is often in light of like what it can tell us about human nature. Hmm. So you look at how what animals can and can't do, how they do it. And it tells us more about on the one hand, it's supposed to tell us about the nature of God. On the other hand, it tells us about human nature, the kinds of things that we're capable of and the ways that we do and don't do them. And then the second half of class, we look at angels, as sort of like these thought experiments about what if there were, you know, like, what if there was just intellect and will, and no body,
1: Mm -hmm. you know,
0: then what happens with freedom, then what happens with Emotions.
1: So how then ultimately did philosophers distinguish between man and animal around this time, or how did they say, did, did it have to do with souls? How did they justify like men have humans having a soul, but animals not?
0: Um, actually at this point, everybody thinks that animals have souls too. Oh, really? Because it's, yeah, it's the Aristotelian picture where everything that's alive is animate everything that's alive has a soul so plants have souls and animals have souls and human beings have souls the difference is what kind of soul they have and what kind of capacities those souls have so what's supposed to make human beings different is that we have rational capacities so you know this this goes back to plato and aristotle and they run with it um and they're like yeah we we have the ability to think about our thoughts right we have the ability to think of something as good in itself um and that's what's supposed to set us off from animals who they think can do so peter adamson talks about this too this kind of estimative reasoning so they can they can kind of basically figure out oh, that thing that's coming toward us, that's a wolf, you know, we're sheep, we should run away. But they can't do things like, you know, organize a defense against the sheep using, you know, like rational geometric principles that will help them create a good shield. Hmm.
1: And you mentioned I think. I don't know if you described it as a, a spectrum. Maybe the word you used was landscape, but we, or medieval philosophers were mainly discussing animals to shed light on what they were, what, what humans were. And you, in this context, you also mentioned angels as Mm -hmm. I think you said they were incorporeal, but how, how are we supposed to relate to angels? What do angels tell us about us?
0: Ah, so the, wait, you started by asking something about animals first.
1: I, well, I guess what I was wondering is if, if we speak of, if we do
0: we think of animals as having value in themselves? Um, so this actually changes a little bit in the 13th century earlier than that, with people like Hildegard, the focus tends to be on what animals can teach human beings about themselves and about God. Mm-hmm. And then partly with the with the translation of Aristotle's text into Latin and the Islamic commentaries that come along with it, people like Albert the Great start getting, and William of Arvern, start getting really interested in animals for their own sake. So Albert the Great's De Animalibus is this giant treatise on, on animals and some of the time he's talking about the relationship between animals and human beings. And a lot of it is him just talking about animals for animals sake. This is kind of where, so Albert the great is one of the big figures in early biology and mm-hmm. zoology. Cause like Aristotle has all these texts where he's talking about like the generation and corruption of animals and um, the medievals are like, okay, this is great. You know, and, and they just dive in with both feet. Hmm. And then the question, but though, jump in with both feet. You don't dive in with both feet.
1: No, a pencil dive, you go feet first. But hmm. um, what what do angels tell us about us? How do, do well, my question was, do we were medieval philosophers studying angels or thinking about angels in the same way that they were thinking about animals to shed light on what we are.
0: There again, you have this really interesting juxtaposition between the idea that we're supposed to be like angels in important ways. And so there is this kind of interesting comparison, where the more we know about, you know, angelic cognition, for example, like the maybe the better we can understand how we think about things. But angels also become a way of thinking about God, and kind of imagining. So what if you had, you know, what if you had these beings that had intellects and will, and and no body, right, like no sense perception, the way that we think of it?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Like, what would it mean for that kind of a being to be angry? or to love. And so they, they Tobias Hoffman has a wonderful book about this called the rebel angels, where he talks about like, basically like, okay, here's here are the sort of functions that angels play in medieval philosophy. And a big chunk of it is helping us understand the will and the nature of free will. Um, And part of it is just the exploration of, you know, different kinds of beings, the kind of being qua being, but then a lot of it is helping us understand our place in the cosmos better.
1: What is the connection to free will?
0: Um, So the thought is, you angels are angels have like human beings, intellects and wills. Um, Unlike human beings, they're not created in time that works this way. So we experience time as a progression right? It's this linear kind of thing. And all of our thinking goes through different stages, right? So you're like premise, 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 conclusion. And the thought is angels don't exist in time in the same kind of way. They don't gain knowledge in that kind of sequential order. And so the moment that angels are created, they have all the information about God that they're going to get. And the first act of will is either choosing God or choosing against God.
2: Hmm. So
0: basically this, the medieval story is that at the first incident of their creation, the angels either fall or stay. And that raises all these kinds of questions about like, okay, so if you have a perfect, like, you know, you have an intellect that's getting all the information that it's gonna get. You know, human beings can sin out of ignorance. That's like one of the main things we do, right? We screw up because we just kind of don't know enough. And angels don't have that excuse. So how could they sin? You know, like, how could you have somebody choose against God in that kind of situation? So it becomes this huge question that all kinds of medieval philosophers argue about because it says a lot about what you think the connection the the relation is between intellect and will, whether you think that what's got to happen here is ultimately that the intellect does something scurry or that the will chooses badly.
1: Hmm. Well, the, the last thing I'll ask for today, then, is you mentioned that, or you mentioned that angels are kind of abstract, I think I used the word incorporeal, but were there are also mm-hmm. concerns about how angels could interact with humans and the rest of the physical world if they didn't have, well, I guess on some level, they must have causal powers to interact with the world. But if, if those exactly. causal powers aren't physical, how is that uh, supposed to happen in this framework?
0: Right? Oh, yeah. So that's actually something else that people really get really interested in angels for the idea about, um, what their causal powers are and how they can exercise them and so you get these discussions about uh so angels don't have bodies okay well demonic possession do you actually have angels that can like take over a human body and use it right like a meat puppet and they end up saying no but what they say is that and there are different versions of that. I'm giving you the, the Albert, the great and Thomas Aquinas version that angels can basically like condense bodies for themselves out of air.
1: Okay, so cool.
0: Go all the way back to the pre-Socratics, right. And think about, you know, like air and the thought is like in kind of like a super dense mist until it, until it basically like, you know, is like a solid body and it can take on the form of other people um and interact with them that way so basically the thought is like the angels concentrate their causal powers in this particular area where they've like condensed for themselves these bodies out of mist and that's like how the angels talk to abraham and that's how you know like the angel talks to hagar and ishmael and Hmm. yeah and also Um, so you like King Arthur. You remember the the you know, like the story about how Arthur gets conceived. And you know Refresh
1: my memory and the audiences (laughs) if 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 it'll take you forever.
0: (laughs) No no no, it's it's all saucy. Yeah, so 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 you have Uther Pendragon who's decided that he's in love with Igraine, right? That's her name? Arthur's mom. I don't know. And and she's married to the Duke of Cornwall, but he's off at war. And so what Merlin does is basically like cast this, you know, spell that makes Uther look like the Duke of Cornwall for a night. And that's mm. how Arthur's conceived. Yeah. And then later it turns out that the Duke had actually been killed that evening. And so it couldn't possibly have been him. And that's how they figure this all out. But yeah, you get these kind of medieval ideas that you can have, you know, this this sort of the nether world, right, the kind of like spirit world can play these sorts of tricks, basically. Hmm. So obviously, if the angels are supposed to be good angels, and they're messengers, they're not pretending they're other people. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the stories for uh, how women in the Crusades defend being pregnant when their husbands get back. And, you know, so their husbands yeah. have been gone for a little too long. Yeah. And they're like, no, it was you. I swear, you know. Yeah.
1: That's funny. Yeah. Uh, all right, Christina. Well, it was so fun to talk to you. I could talk. I could talk about this stuff all day. So we'll have to oh, pick yeah, up another fabulous. time. But thanks so much for joining me.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you.
1: Hold on, geeselings. Before you go, please uh, like subscribe, follow. If you haven't already, smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.